In today's special interview episode, we have the opportunity to sit down with decorated war veteran, accomplished author, podcast host, and current congressman Dan Crenshaw. We talk about his new book, Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage, and a myriad of other interesting topics. All of this on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture. I have the honor today of sitting with one of my personal heroes, someone I, I admire a great deal, Congressman Dan Crenshaw. Dan is uh, decorated, to say the least, lieutenant commander in the Navy, Navy SEAL of 10 years, correct? Yep. Yeah, earned multiple uh, medals for his honor and bravery overseas and talks about it a ton in this book, which we'll get to today. Really looking forward to that. Currently freshman in uh, the... Congress running again this fall, yep. and uh, we're going to get into all of this and more today. So, Congressman, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be with you. Yeah, so to Houston. I'm. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's good to be in Houston. I am wanting to start off this episode. I have a million questions for you. More than this time will a lot for, but I'd love for the listeners and the viewers just to hear a little bit about who you are, sure. your history, how you got involved in in politics. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Houston, although I wasn't born here. I was born in Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, my dad is, uh, you know, we're six generations of Texans on the, my dad's side of the family. Awesome. And uh, he was in the oil and gas industry. And as many know, when you're in that industry, you tend to move around a lot. And so my, my life growing up was uh, moving between Houston and overseas. But, um, but this, is, this is always home. Um, I spent high school in Bogota, Colombia. And uh, before I even went there, I'd, I'd wanted to be a Navy SEAL. So, uh, you know, and if, if you're from San Diego, you've met a lot of uh, team guys. Absolutely. They, the, the, the more likely story that they'll tell you is that they, they, wanted, they had this dream since they were like 12 years old. And um, that, that remains pretty consistent. So uh, that's what I did. And um, spent 10 years in San Diego um, on Team 3 and Special Reconnaissance Team 1, uh, always on the West Coast and uh, deployed uh, five times. Um, I was wounded in 2012, which was which is probably the moment that led to my path here. I don't I don't think I ever would have left the military uh, in, in, unless I was forced to, and uh, so I did because I fought it for quite a while. I actually didn't leave until late 2016. I was medically retired. Um, I did a couple more deployments after uh, losing my eye. Um, you know, more um, more intel related, less okay. less n- no combat related deployments. But um, eventually, I had to leave and transition to the a different world, and kind of stumbled into politics in a way. I mean. It's, it's, I wanted to be in policy. So, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't see a path towards politics. It, it wasn't, it's not that I was averse to the idea. I just, it just didn't see a path there necessarily until one opened up one day and it happened really overnight. Wow. Um, and then all of a sudden I was back in my parents' uh, game room setting up a, awesome. a really bad campaign. <laughs> How was that campaign? Overall, it was really bad, uh, but it was, uh, it, it got better, of course. Gotcha. Um, you know, we got clearly worked. Yeah. It just, yeah. it took, to, it t- it's very hard for somebody who's unknown, um, has no real money, yeah. uh, to, to build a, a campaign team. Um, you end up with a lot of people who are kind of interested in politics, but really don't know anything. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult. And so I, I, I looked at it like a military operation. It could, you know, there's, there's two basic truths about campaigning. One is get people to know who you are and get them to kind of like you. Nice. So if you, if you simplify the mission in that way, it's, it's, um, it's doable. 
but you better get real creative and you better be very compelling. And so that's, uh, we only had a few months too, because that was November of 2017 and the election was March of 2018. This is the primary anyway, which was the most competitive part of the race. Wow, okay. um, the general was less competitive and well, still competitive, but less, less so than the primary. I mean, I got a second place in the primary with, uh, and, and I was just squeaking by by 155 votes. So, and then and do a runoff after that. So, yeah, it was, it was quite the, the David Goliath story. Wow. Um, outspent by just one candidate, 30 to 1. Wow. So it's, oh, uh, my goodness. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, um, it was, uh, I don't write about it. I, it there's, there wasn't really room for it in the book. Yeah. Um, that, that story didn't fit with the themes very well. So, um, I never really told it, but maybe for the next one. Cool. There is a next one. Yeah, maybe. I don't Sequel. know. I haven't figured, like out, what's, I haven't figured out what it's going to be about yet, but we'll, something. Well, awesome. Well, Dan, there's something that I love to start some of these episodes when I have guests with just affirming a few of the things that I've noticed about you as I've watched you from, obviously, this is my first time meeting you in person, but as I've read about you and then watched you on TV and, and followed along with your voting record and what you prioritize, there's, there's two things that come to mind first, and I don't want to just boost your ego, but I, I do want to be honest. Politicians today, I mean, you know this, Congress is one of the least trusted institutions in the United States, often for good reason. I mean, there's there's a serious divide in sometimes what politicians say and then what they end up doing. It's one of the realities of politics. And you've broken the mold on that in a big way. I think trusting politicians is something Americans want to do but have a hard time doing. And what I've learned from you, just even from your year and a half in Congress, is is you are rebuilding trust with the American people in a cool way because you're authentic. And you talk about that a lot in here, which I really appreciate. So I know every everybody I've talked to in Houston is thankful to have you representing them on the national stage. Second thing is, and love that you hit on this in the book too, you're very solutions-based in your approach to everything. So I think one of the reasons that people have a hard time trusting politicians is that Every politician is really good at talking about the problems, but very few of them, they kind of skate around the actual solutions and you don't do that. Right. In fact, you, you say something in this book that I thought was cool. You said it's okay to not have an opinion. It's okay to take time to develop them about things. Yeah. It's okay to just know a few things. What's a lot worse is to be so sure about something that you really don't know. Yeah. And so just wanted to, to share that. And then obviously, thank you for your service because I, I think that when somebody's willing to love their country so much and their fellow man and fellow woman so much that they're willing to carry that love overseas and fight. And I just really appreciate that. So yeah, thank you. This book, what was the inspiration? Why'd you write it? Why now? Uh, it, it did kind of come out of nowhere. Um, it was, it was a bit of an idea like, Hey, we should write a book. Um, and then, uh, and I was like, well, what would I write about? And sort of threw around some, some ideas. Um, I was very reluctant to, to, try to write a book okay. just because the time suck of this thing was, was unbelievable and just made, made that first year of my time in Congress extremely stressful. So you uh, wrote this all during that time? Yeah, yeah. Cause wow. we, yeah, because uh, the idea came from actually the same guy who convinced me to run for Congress also convinced me to write a book. <laughs> And uh, this this guy is, is responsible for me doing so much extra work, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is. But I'm, I'm glad he did. Obviously, I, I you know it, he's I, he's in the acknowledgments, you know, buddy John. Um, and uh, th this seemed like a natural fit, um, especially post SNL. So yeah. SNL was a was an example of confronting outrage culture. And, uh, and for the viewers who haven't heard that story, yeah. would you mind condensing it? I know you go into it. Yeah, basically, um, Pete Davidson on SNL made fun of my, you know, 
appearance with the eye patch and stuff. It was like kind of funny. Then it turned into not funny. And then everybody was really pissed off about it. And, um, you know, and I just, uh, I didn't like laugh it off or anything, but I was like, well, you know, it's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask for him to be canceled. I'm not going to ask for him to be fired. You know, I'm not, you know I mean? It's just like, there's, there's a line that we can walk, right. That, that, that would make us all just better people. And, um, and I, and I talk in detail about the SNL thing in the, in that chapter called, um, the right sense of shame. Um, which I also believe is what you quoted too. When I, when I talk about, it's okay not to have an opinion. There's no shame in not knowing something. There's a lot of shame in having a very strong opinion without knowing something. And, and we're, and we've, we've really lost what it means to have the right sense of shame in, the, in our culture. Um, the way we shame others is off balance, and the way we, the way we feel shame ourselves is off balance. We, we don't feel bad for things we should feel bad for, and, um, and, and, and we, we're shameless in our outrage. You know, shameless politicians are often shameless liars, I think. Um, you know, it's, I mean, the, I mean, geez, I'm going through a campaign right now where if, if you were listening to everything my opponent said, you wouldn't even know who she is or what yeah. she's running on. Yeah. She, you, you would Call just that know you, that yeah. it's just lying about me. It's just, it's a very strange, this is a cultural phenomenon. And, um, you know, and that, that's, so that's what this book confronts is just, just getting us back to some basics. Um, but I do it in a very multidisciplinary approach. I, I integrate a lot of pop culture examples, um, some biblical examples, some historical examples, and then a lot of just my own, um, experience in the SEAL teams, how we, how we use shame to be better people. Wow. And, um, and so it's a fun read because of that, because it's jumping all over the place, yeah. but it's all tied to certain themes. Yeah. I, I want to hit on some of those themes and the, the title of the book is literally fortitude, American resilience in the era of outrage. So this, you've kind of described outrage culture. I want to get to it a little more, but what is fortitude? I mean, what's the, this is the antithesis to mm-hmm. the era of outrage. Yeah. Essentially, right? That's yeah, the antithesis to fragility. Um, you know, fortitude is, is resiliency um, in the face of adversity. Yeah. Um, growing from adversity. This, this, this notion that whatever doesn't kill you does make you stronger. Yeah. Um, but our culture believes the opposite. Our culture believes that if it, if it doesn't kill you, it may, if it's challenging, it's, it weakens you. Mm. That's not true. Yeah. That's not psychologically true. It's not spiritually true. It, it's fundamentally not true. But that's what so many people believe. And they're so willing to cancel things that they disagree with because they believe it hurts them. They believe that words physically hurt them. They believe that ideas and words are violence. This is a, this is a very radical transformation. You know, you can, we, we can talk about the helicopter parenting and, you know, the second place trophies all day long. And it has something to do with it. But this, this is much darker than that, yeah. what, what's happened in America. This is, this is, this is, a pathology that that's occurred in people's heads. Um, and I think it's a, it's a consequence of victimhood ideology, um, the politics of resentment, identity politics, Marxism, all of these things have kind of intertwined. And then you, and then people didn't have a good base because of the second place trophy culture. People yeah. didn't have a good base to deal with those radical ideas that have always been there. And so those radical ideas were able to seep into our culture in a really profound way. And so you know, and it's obviously gotten a lot worse since I even published the book, but the, but the book is very prescient. It was, it was it basically talks about exactly what's happening right now, especially the last chapter. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember growing up, and I'm not that old, 
the phrase, the kind of fun one-liner was, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words mm-hmm. can never hurt me. You yeah. mentioned that in the book. These idioms have, have deep truth to them. Yeah, they there's do. There's a reason we use them so much. And it's gone. I mean, yeah. there's, there's a very small chunk of the population today that, that values that, mm-hmm. that sticks and stones can break my bones, but I won't, I won't allow what other people say about me to dictate my yeah. ability to stay still, like you mm-hmm. talk about, I want to get to that, staying calculated in my approach, reasonable in my response. And it's something that, again, many of my listeners are, are people of faith and, and wonderful people that really value living our lives as Christ exemplified. And Christ, in the face of persecution, kept about his mission all the time. Yeah. And it's something that I, I, really, I really appreciated, especially all the, the SEAL team stories, because I think that you even mentioned there was some things that happened in Buds, which for those of you who don't know, Buds is the SEAL training school, correct? And uh, the process you go through, I know Hell Week, it's something that's famously talked about. Very few have experienced and fewer have actually successfully completed. But you actually talk about that many of the exercises you did in Buds weren't actually for the purpose of you ever in using them on the battlefield. Uh, you mentioned the uh, scuba tank underwater mm-hmm. and people unwrapping your cords, but more for the purpose of how do you respond under adversity and persecution. Yeah. What is the, this is a loaded question, so I, uh, you can pick one thing. There's probably many things. One of the greatest things you feel like you understood more deeply, uh, attained ideologically from your time in the SEALs? Um. Push your limits. I mean, that, that's the thing. That's, that's what Hell Week does, and then, and then the rest of your career may or may not push them even further. You know, it kind of depends. I, I was certainly pushed further just because I got my face blown up. But, um, you know, it's uh, the, everybody, everybody has a sense of their limits, like where that wall is of achievement, and, and Hell Week just blows that out of the water. They're like, oh, you, you think you can't stay up for six days straight and run like 200 <laughs> miles with a boat on your head? Everybody would be like, no, there's, that's not physically possible. That would be that would be a that would be an objective opinion to have. Like, no, it's not physically possible. Then it turns out it is. Yeah. You just got to make yourself do it. And, um, and so, once you that's what gives seals the excessive confidence that they have. Um, and some people think that's a uh, you know a vice. I don't know. It can be. Yeah. <laughs> There's a difference between cockiness and confidence. Of course, of and, um, and sometimes we walk that line a little too closely. But it's um, but it's necessary because you need to you need to know that when things are really bad that you've kind of been there before yeah. and there's sort of a centering um, that happens. And um, yeah, so to pushing those limits and knowing that you can no matter what, that, that's, the, that's the whole point of yeah. BUDS. You mentioned uh, there's a book that you compare this to in the, in the forward about The 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. And another great book, by the way, if you haven't read it, highly recommend. And something I see that you both emphasize, and it's part of the reason why I feel like young people especially are drawn to the message that you carry, to the message that people like Jordan carry, is this countercultural idea of everything that we go through making us stronger, the reality that we should seek to be someone worth uh, other people looking up to, that we should not see ourselves as victims but as overcomers, that we should see everything that happens to us in our life as an opportunity for something greater, not as something that held Mm -hmm. us back. And you mentioned this whole concept of heroes. And in my own life, it's something my wife talking talk, I talk about all the time, or who are the heroes in our life that we can kind of look to. And you have this whole piece about redefining what heroes look like and how culture is attempting to 
make the heroes in culture the one who are the, the ones who are the loudest, the one who are the most outraged, the one who are the uh, the most passionate in an unhealthy way about yeah. whatever issue. Again, attached from much material knowledge about the very issues they're passionate about. What are some of the traits that you feel embody an ideal hero, somebody that we are to look up to and aspire to be more yeah. like? There's no surprise to what those might be. The problem, we all know them intuitively. The problem is that we've, I didn't try to redefine them. I was just saying, hey, let's go back to normal. Yeah, because, totally. Because the culture has redefined it where a hero is, is the victim. The hero, it's, it's heroic to be outraged. It's heroic to be shaking your fist and screaming at somebody. That, that's now that's now seen as as a I don't know it's it's like elevated as virtue and it's a very strange thing um, you know heroic attributes are exactly what you think they are right we we, we Jesus is the perfect embodiment of yeah. of what it means you know this is this is all that you aspire to be you'll never be it but you'll aspire to be it and this is why I say hero archetypes yeah I don't think it's useful to have heroes like specific people. Mm. Um, people always ask me what mine are, and I just don't think that way. I, I do think in terms of attributes, and I mean, t- t- to name a few. I mean, somebody who exercises good, calm judgment. Somebody who uses, uses reason instead of emotion to make decisions. Um, somebody who, who, who smiles in the face of adversity. Somebody who lets things roll off their... And I'm speaking in terms of fortitude, right? Of course, I, yeah, of course. We, we, could do this, we, we could do this list forever. Absolutely. Um, and so... You know, but these days, like we we always look at Superman as this kind of other, you know, he's a mythical character, but like he kind of always makes he always seems to do the right thing. Like it's always just like exactly what you would think. And and like writers in Hollywood, like they've always as, as crazy as Hollywood is, like they've always had a sense of what the right person is because they built because they have to. Yeah. They have to build characters that are likable. So as far left and 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 progressive and postmodern as the Hollywood people are, turns out. They always make movies with a, with <laughs> with classical hero archetypes. Yeah. And I, th- I find that so funny, um, and they know they have to because otherwise people won't watch it. Because it's it turns out because it turns out people are still normal, yeah. And they're still and, the, and human nature doesn't change the way that the progressives would like to think it changes. Human nature is pretty stable. You can you can sort of civilization kind of keeps it from doing its worst tendencies, but it's pretty stable. This is you know the it's that's just a truth. Um, and so, like Superman these days, though, for him to be elevated by, by our current culture as a hero, he'd have to be a victim. He'd have to he'd have to be victimized, and then people would say, "Oh yeah, that's Superman. Look at that." You know, why? I mean, there's and, and by the way, in the last couple of weeks, there's just been constant race yeah. crime hoaxes, hate crime hoaxes, yeah. almost like daily. Like, why are people doing this? Why do people want to be victimized so badly? It's a very it's a it's a it's a pathology. Like there's not really a rational explanation for it. I mean, kind of, we can kind of come up with origin stories for it. It's complicated. Whatever it is, it's really bad. Yeah. It's, it's it's tearing people apart. Yeah. Well, it's it's something too. I've even with the Superman example, the they're never the moral of the story is never they did everything right either when it was easy. It's always mm-hmm. Superman faced some sort of adversity and then from that chose yeah. the harder of the two that yeah. would lead to more And maybe redemption. he screws up at first but then corrects exactly. himself. Like There's always stories that, you know, well, you got to make the story interesting too. And yeah. so it's speak, you know, but we know them intuitively. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and I think we've lost sight of that intuition. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it's strange. It's, it's, it's become thought of as oppressive to 
to think in that terms, um, whatever that means. Again, it's, it's hard to rationally speak to the other side's thoughts on this because it's so incoherent. Yeah. Um, but it, it, but it also from a, just a, a perfectly practical standpoint, it doesn't work. It, it, it locks somebody in victimhood. When you're locked in victimhood, you'll never achieve anything. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so just from a, and what I, what I get to later on in the book is when I talk about the stories we tell ourselves is even if you truly are victimized, you can't think that way. And there's, there's no benefit to it. So it's the, the, the formula for success remains the same, whether, whether it's a fake victimhood or a real victimhood. And again, outrage culture is a lot of fake victimhood. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's this, it's perceived oppression as opposed to real oppression. doesn't mean there isn't real oppression, of course. but, but, yeah. but, but there's also a rational explanation for it. And we, we've, in our, in our current moment in America, we've, we've decided to do away completely with rational explanations of it. doesn't mean there's no problems. It just, I, I think it's overstated to an extraordinary degree. Um, we also seem to be fighting with a history that we can't change, Yeah, which is just, again, it's not rational. This, this is outrage culture. This is an outrage culture is fundamentally irrational and emotional. And so, but in any case, the solution remains the same, whether it's real or perceived, the solution remains the same. You have to say, that's the past. I control the future. And if you don't say that, then you remove all agency from yourself. And I can't imagine a worse existence for a human being. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, too, some of the reasons that you are you identify ideologically as a conservative throughout this book. And again, one thing I appreciate and something that we've talked about a lot on the show is that I told my, my listeners the very first episode we ever started this that my, my ideology would be categorized as conservative because I've placed a lot of time into figuring out what does the conservative movement stand for? Not just because I don't like liberals, not just because any of that. In fact, I, I try to go into these issues with open mind. Something I see you do is really clearly articulate why you're conservative. And I think one of the big reasons is this idea that the conservative movement values giving agency back to the people, mm-hmm. that you are in charge of your own destiny, that you and the Lord get to go through that together. You get to process your past, whatever yeah. you've gone through. Is there any other big reasons that you feel like the conservative movements where you've rested ideologically and what you've promoted during your time in Congress? Yes. I mean, that aspect of conservatism speaks to the cultural superiority of conservatism. You know, personal responsibility, it's... Uh, now, now, liberals decry that and they, they sort of, you know, snub their nose at it. Like, oh, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you listen to AOC. It's literally impossible. It's like... Just the, you know, it's just the, the lack of thinking that occurs on the left is mind-blowing. But you have to actually think about personal responsibility. And again, it, uh, and, and I kind of already said it, it's, it's a, an extremely important cultural foundation. We're the only ones who defend it. Now, liberals who are successful, they live by it. Of course they do. Yeah. And they teach their kids those Absolutely. lessons. Yeah. They teach their kids, hey, you know, you work this hard, you get this much. I'm not going to give your, I'm not going to give your brother extra, you know, the same allowance if he doesn't do as much work, right? That's how liberal parents raise their, and if they don't, well, then their kids probably screwed up. But, but most people do. Most good parents teach their kids accountability, that their actions matter, all of these things. But why wouldn't you teach the American people the same thing? Yeah. Why would you have such a different standard? You love your kids. It's ostensibly why you're teaching them this thing. So why don't you love the American people? It's an extremely important cultural foundation, this notion that you're in control of your own destiny and that you're accountable to yourself. Um, and so it can't just be derided as, oh, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, that, that's, that, is a, that is a shallow way of thinking of course, about yeah. it. So we're the only, ones who, def- we're only the ones who defend that. Um, we also defend basic truths and economics. 
um, like protecting patents and personal property rights. Liberals don't do these things. You know, it's like it, we don't agree on this stuff anymore. And this is really crazy. Um, the left wants to create rights out of everything, positive rights, meaning you get a service. If you vote for me, you get a service. It's your right. Yeah. It's like, well, what do you mean that's your right? Because if you have to take it from somebody else, it it's can't a, be a right. Uh, nah. Rights okay. can only be negative, meaning, you know, life, liberty, property. Like, you can't infringe upon rights. And so, they, so they, they've redefined words. And it's really dangerous stuff. And that, that pertains to politics and economics. And so, you know, they're also – conservatism also on the political side stands for a republic. And that's, that's, a, that's an inherently more stable, fair way to govern uh, a country like ours at least. You know, if, if we were New Zealand, you could argue for a much more democratic – system because you got like it's nobody you got like yeah. nobody there it's yeah. very homogenous like fine you know it's, it's so the left sees these places that operate in like tribal ways like oh, new zealand they're just all in it together they can like make policy like that and they're like just they're like a tribe and they just love that for some reason mm. it's just like it's so interesting and like imagine if you tried to and i, and I understand because that's very human to like that so that's that is part of human nature we're very tribalistic the Western Enlightenment ideals saw the problems with that tribalism. Like you, you can't govern effectively. One side has to win. And that's not healthy because it's just mob democracy at yeah. that point. And um, so they set up a republic. And, and in that republic, there's, there's quite a bit of balance of power. You, you, know, you want to live this way in Houston. You, doesn't, you can't force people to live that way in San Francisco and vice versa. The left doesn't see it that way. They really want everybody to live the same. And they think... That if 51% of the population believes it, then it should be law. Hmm. And for national standard, that's a really crazy thing to say. I mean, it, it's highly divisive. They, they think it's all about unity and we're all part of the same tribe. It's not. 49% it's ex, it's still extremely aren't with you. Yeah, divisive. Absolutely. And so this is a, it's a very unstable, chaotic way to govern because they want, they want pure democracy. Why do you think they call themselves Democrats and we call ourselves Republicans? Of course. Um, I don't know if that's the actual origin of the, the party name. That makes names, sense, yeah, but, absolutely. But that's how I explain it to people because, at least in modern terms, that's exactly what we're defending. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's just a, there's a, those three, I think it's, been, it's, it's useful to look at conservatism in those three um, categories, cultural, political, and economics. Yeah, great. I, I want to ask about something I touched on earlier, this idea of being still. You talk about this, you actually delegate an entire chapter to it, which I thought was profound because, again, this is one of those parallels that there's a, a spiritual, cultural, political importance of being still. And you really categorize it as it relates to keeping ourselves calm under pressure, really being calculated in our response, especially to the outrage culture. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on that? What does it mean to be still? How have you implemented that in your own life? Yeah, it just means count to 10. Yeah. It's all it means. Cool. Like, it's, Easy and simple. You know, I like it, it. Everything we say in here, like, you know, it can be boiled down to a, just an old, an old idiom or something, which is kind of the point. Like, there are, there are no new concepts in this book. There's, I have new ways of talking about them. And again, I'm very multidisciplinary in it. So, in the be still chapter, I, I use examples from seal training on how we're trained to be still and think through things. I use examples from politics and news interviews and, and I use examples from ancient philosophy and stoicism. So there's, there's all of this because the point is this, is that these are deeply held truths that we have to kind of reimagine a little bit or, or rediscover is probably a better word. Um, but uh, it really, you know, there's, again, it's like sticks and stones. You said it before these, these old, these old sayings that your mother taught you 
are fundamentally true. There's a reason they're passed down for so long, but for some reason they're not passed down anymore. Yeah. Because there's this new sort of cultural revolution where everything traditional is bad. Mm. And what a stupid thing to say. What an utterly stupid thing to say. It, it, it speaks to such ingratitude and such ignorance. Like it, and it's, patho- again, it's pathological. I, it's, it really has to stop. Yeah. It really has to stop. And, and it's kind of normal for every like 15 16 year old to sort of think that way but then they got to confront with reality and they learn some things and get some experience and they're like okay well this is maybe not exactly what i thought because i think we could all sort of imagine ourselves as teenagers thinking some crazy thoughts right the problem with our universities is they started to coddle these thoughts and 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 embrace this idea well if you think that then it's your truth instead of saying no it's not true stop it like here's the truth yeah our civilization is built on real foundations, and there's not the crap you're saying. But um, but our university professors got bullied into it over the years. This started around 2013. It's it's I, I read about I, I referenced Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which really documents yeah. this phenomenon well, in a, in a great so. way. And so it's it's all all of these threads come together to to create the problems that we're seeing right now, and it's it's going to be very hard to reverse. Yeah, how. How do you envision we go about reversing it? Because I know that that's your mission. You're not somebody yeah. that just sits back and lets it happen. I'll just have more people buy my book. Um, <laughs> nice. And there's a lot of good like books it. like good. it. It's just it's just going to take a long fight. Um, you just need more good people to speak out yeah. and be educated. Because these things, confronting these crazy arguments is difficult um, because um, a lot of regular people, like they, they know that it sounds crazy, but they've never had to confront this stuff. Because why would you? Why you know? Like, so it's it's it, people are just, I think, just back on their heels. Like, what did you, they did? What did they just say? Like, is it true? Like, what? Yeah. Um. And so, and I'm trying to provide in the in the book. I'm trying to provide tools for people to like rhetorical tools for people to use. So you have to understand where the other side's coming from, and then what the right arguments are to confront it. And um, we just need more people actually doing that. It, this isn't some legislation that can fix this this is a national conversation and it and it's it's coming from within the culture and it has to be fought within the culture yeah we we just celebrated america's 244th birthday a few Mm -hmm. weeks ago and something you you talk about a lot in the book is your experiences as a uh, throughout your childhood and and what you learned along the way again it's really clear through this book and this is why i love it so much is it's all very value-based because i think that's what we can hold to not everybody shares the same stories but we can all attach to similar values and use them in our own lives Growing up in a lot of different countries, a lot of different environments, mm-hmm. uh, you speak fluent Spanish, you've uh, integrated yourselves in, in many different cultures. What's one of the most key things you've learned about America from mm-hmm. spending so much of your time outside of our borders? Well, yeah, I mean, it was what makes America it was, different? It was, it was definitely interesting growing up and like, you know, America is always the punching bag. Um, even for people who kind of like America, they're oh. still like, oh, gringos, you know, and it's, uh, and it's, it's kind of what you would expect. It's, it's almost like the little brother, big brother, um, relationship in, in a way. And I, and I always noticed it growing up. And, and so I found myself in a strange place, just trying to defend the, the tenants of America. Um, but with, you know, with what knowledge, I don't know. Um, I, I think what's, what's horrible about kids growing up in the United States these days is they're probably finding themselves in a similar situation, but probably much more vitriolic. Mm. You know, I think, uh, you know, if you're growing up in South America, like I was, you know, you, you might hear something about us imperialism every once in a while. 
um, you know, meddling in South American affairs, which is, again, somewhat true. Um, but now what you're hearing in America is that America yeah. is pure evil. Um, and that, and, and again, it's, pe- it's people confronting a history that they can't change and, com- and completely blowing past the fact that, that it, was, it was only our ideals that enabled us to change it. Um, w- w- without the Western Enlightenment ideals that, that began in Europe and were culminated in the United States, you wouldn't have an end to slavery. It would just still exist. And by the way, it still exists far more than it ever did before. Yeah. It's just not in our countries. Yeah. In other countries. Um, and so it's um, the, the sense of ignorance and ingratitude is, is, is unfortunately deeply held by, by students. And it's just, it's just part of their narratives. And uh, I'm not even so sure it's in their, te- depending on, it might be in some of their textbooks. But for the most part, it's, it's not. It, it, it's coming from rhetoric from teachers. It's the Howard Zinn history. Of course. Yeah. Only, only teach the counter 1619 project. Yeah. It's the revisionist. Yep, absolutely. It's revisionist and, well, 1619 is like yeah, full-on yeah. revisionist. Heresy. Howard heresy. Zinn, I don't know that he is wrong. He just only teaches one side. Yeah. And and it's useful to have that like counter-argument. Like, okay, let's let's check it. That's a good analytic. If, if you're smart enough to have that conversation, great. It's good. Um, but the problem is, is our education system started only teaching the counter, the counter, fa- the counter narratives. Mm. And then that when you only teach that over and over again, it, it paves the way for a historical projects like the 1619 project, which just makes things up. Yeah. I, and I, I talk about it for like a, a sentence in my book, but it's like I use the one example of well, traffic patterns in Atlanta are because of slavery. And you're like, what are you guys just stop? Yeah, this is nonsense. And um, it just and it makes people feel horrible. What is the point of all this? What good is it doing? It's doing nothing good. You know, and, and you should judge movements based on some kind of outcome, right? There has to be some standard. I mean, I, I would think. Um, some people might argue against that, you know. It, it, I can Philosophically, I can kind of see why. It's like, well, does, you know, if it's true, then does it matter what the outcome is? And I can understand that. But the problem is it's not true either. Yeah. It's not objectively true. And the outcome is bad um, because people feel worse. They feel disempowered. They feel angry. They're tearing down their own cities and um, they're calling for policies that are, that are utterly insane. So it's, um, and it's very hard to change their minds. And this is, this is a tenet of outrage culture. It's like the, the complete inability to, to rewire your brain. Um, and uh, it's a sign of mental weakness. Yeah. And I got two more quick questions for you. Uh, what is your first is this? What is your list of the top three priorities as you head into this election? What are your thoughts as we're just a few months away from November? Priorities in, in what sense? Legislatively, what are you focusing on? Mm-hmm. What are you paying attention to? And then what do you think we as a country need to pay attention to? Well, I mean, I, I, I well, it's for for me um, in my election, it's. Look, we're, we're hasn't changed much. Re, re, you know, I guess reignite the economy. That's first and foremost, and that's on everybody's minds. Uh, we can pull everybody in America right now. Their number one issue is going to be we need good, we need our economy yeah. back up and Absolutely. running. Good jobs. Um, they're concerned about coronavirus, but I think most people want to be able to live with coronavirus alongside an open economy, and I think we want to be trusted to be able to do that. You don't need to. You don't need to tell me that I can't go to a restaurant. You tell me what the cases are. Tell me, give me the honest assessment. Don't tell me hospitals are overrun when they're not. This is nonsense. 
Um, I keep having to correct the record because people keep lying about this stuff. You know, people want the choice. They want to be, they want to, they want an informed, you know, um, information and, and then they want to make that choice. So that's going to be a big part of it. Um, healthcare, Republicans need a, a better message on healthcare. And I, and, I, and I know we have a better message. We need to articulate it better. People, people want to know how much their healthcare costs. And, and the Trump administration recently passed an executive order, which um, a lot of hospitals don't like, but I don't care if they don't like it. It's just price transparency. You want to know how much it costs. I want to be able to start shopping around. Like you need to, the foundations of the market don't exist in healthcare and they need to. Um, and the, the Democrats want to remove all those foundations entirely. And then you won't have innovation. You'll have less healthcare, worse quality. Hey, but it'll be free after we double or triple your taxes. So it's not really free. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we got to talk about that. Um, innovation in healthcare is, is a big, big priority of mine. Um, you know, getting people uh, drugs at a, a better price. And there's ways to do that, again, without price controls. That's, that's always, the Democrats like to have the, the, first, the first reaction that your mind might have to a problem. That's usually their solution. Like, uh, they're too, the prices are too high. Okay, make them lower. Just like that. Just like that. Make them lower. Not going to think about any second, third order consequences to that, what it might do. So healthcare has got to be a big one. Um, you know, in this district, we, we care about you know, hurricane season's coming up. Hopefully we don't have a, a, another bad one, but yeah, amen. we're working hard on um, just getting our, our flood infrastructure in place. It's just, it was just not happening for 50 years. And so we're doing a good job on that now. It's slower than people would like, but I'm, I'm happy in the direction that it's going. And so those, I mean, those are just a few yeah. think, of the things that we need to, to work on. I think Republicans need a better message on environmentalism too. I mean, Again, innovation is the is the key there. Uh, carbon capture, geothermal drilling, nuclear. Those are the things I like to talk about, and and investments in that in a smart way. I think is is worthwhile. Um, you know, all of all of the above kind of approach. But uh, you know, exporting more natural gas, building more pipelines, not less. Yeah. Uh, it's in the environmentalist movement has again they've misinformed the public so badly on this stuff. They're just liars. They're just full-on liars because the problem is, is that radical environmentalists who are just seen as, you know, nice, good people by, by a lot of regular Americans, they're not. They, they literally want to tear down the system. They, they don't believe in human existence in a fundamental way. They want less. They don't want you to reproduce. I mean, they're, they're really crazy. And, and then they and so they, they call it this big win when they get this pipeline to, you know, canceled or something. And it's like. Pipeline is a much safer way to transport whatever fuel we're transporting. And you still need the fuel. So now you just end up driving across the ocean from Russia. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, and, and plus natural gas is responsible for lowering our, our carbon emissions overall. So I'm obviously getting into a lot of detail here. But, it's but, but it's a environmentalism is, is something that Republicans need to talk about. Healthcare um, and the economy and, and also just law and order. You know, I think this 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 election, I think, might boil down to this. Chaos versus order. Republicans stand for order, stability, good governance. Um, may not be the radical change that you want because radical change shouldn't be what you want. Yeah. You need to be careful about these things. You need to stop believing that everything has to have radical change from Washington. If you want radical change, talk to your city council you know, and, and, like, and think through it. You know, there's a reason we have a, a federal system. Um, so we just need to be more careful about how we govern and uh, with, with a little less hubris and a little less revolutionary nonsense. And um, let's, let's 
People want stable jobs, safe communities, police, and uh, and we also want to like ourselves. We also yeah. want to like America. Stop tearing down statues and don't give me don't give me this nonsense that we should have a national dialogue about tearing down Washington's statues. No, draw the line there. That's deeply un-American. I'm not going to stand for it. Yeah. And so, and I think I don't think most Americans would want that either. Agreed. Dan, that's awesome. I gleaming so much from this. I think something that I just want to touch on before I move to the last question. Some of these issues that you're prioritizing and that I feel we all should be as we are looking to be informed voters, so much of the driving force behind some of these radical ideas is this emphasis on just reading the headline and not actually looking into any of the details of what would take place Mm -hmm. if such a measure was actually not just put forth but implemented. And something that you talk about in the book is this this encouragement to all of us, especially young people, because, again, I do think there's a headline addicted culture that we have, especially amongst my generation, where we think we know the story if we read the headline. And literally never is that the case. I mean, there's, there's always more to the story, more behind the curtain that we don't know. And we won't know unless we're willing to really look for it. So again, I think it goes back to where we started of it's okay to not know. And I think that's a really good encouragement. It's okay to have to take time to figure out what is the actual uh, pros and cons of the pipeline and what are the arguments on both sides? So then I can know, Hey, this is why I'm standing by having the pipeline in place, whatever it might be. Dan, last question I have for you. As we head into the rest of 2020 and into 2021, into this new decade, what are some of the, even one is great, first step we can take as people that are tracking with this information? Here's what I mean. There's been a lot of polls conducted recently that have found that ideologically, especially socially, majority of Americans, albeit slight, are center right. They're not they're not far left. They don't believe there are more than two genders. They don't believe yeah. it's it's the general mainstream Americans that still feel like, hey, family's important to prioritize. Limited government's probably the way to go. And we just may have different ways of getting there. For that person, what's the next best step for them? How do they speak out and actually, in their sphere of influence, stand up for what they believe in the, in this hostile era of outrage? It's, it's, I get asked that all the time, and there's, there is no simple answer. Because yeah. it, it depends on who you're talking to, and it depends on what you're talking about. Yeah. So I can, give you, I can give you a million different tool sets to use. I think if you're just trying to defend conservatism in general, go back to those three categories I gave you. Cultural, political, economic. Because it just kind of, it, it's hard to, when people get into an argument, it's really hard to like all of a sudden kind of frame your beliefs, especially if you're not used to doing it. Like it's my profession at this point. I'm pretty used to having those conversations. I know exactly what the other person's going to say before they say it. I'm so used to this. And I grew up in a liberal bubble. You know, San Diego's not that liberal, but it ain't conservative. No. And, uh, and, um, we have pockets. Yeah. No, I mean, San Diego's a great place. It is. It's, it's, um, it's very uh, tempered. It's, a, it's, it's just kind of apolitical. It's a city on a hill in the rest of California, yeah. for sure. And, um, and I was in the military community, so... Not like I was in a liberal bubble there, but I went to Tufts. I went to Harvard. You know, I understand what they think. And the media is constantly spewing left-wing arguments. So my point is, is that you're not going to surprise me. Yeah. Like I'm always waiting to, even for my colleagues, I'm like, I'm waiting. Give me the insight that I just never saw. I'd love to hear it and never hear it. Um, but what's interesting is when I talk to them and because there are still open-minded liberals out there. Of course. I believe um, that. And they'll be like, huh. 
Never thought of it that way. Really? You really don't know my arguments? This is your profession. How do you not know my arguments? I don't understand. It's amazing. It happened at Harvard a lot, too. They have no no clue what conservatives think. And so it gives you a lot of advantages. If you know what you think, if you understand it very well, you need to be educated on on, on what we think. Because a lot of conservatives don't understand why they're conservative. They feel it because we are psychologically wired, liberal and conservative. That is a natural human thing. You got to know the philosophy. And so, again, categories, culture, economics, politics. This is very easy to remember this way. Um, And I already explained it, so I won't explain it again. Here's another way I like to talk about it. And this is from Dennis Prager's um, writings. Just give them a coin. You want to know what conservative stands for? Here's a penny. Why the penny? Because it has Abe Lincoln on it, first Republican president. We've always been on the right side of history. Freed the slaves. Um, we, we, we freed jailed journalists that progressives under Woodrow Wilson jailed because they hated free speech. They yeah. hated the Constitution. People don't realize this about Woodrow Wilson and the start of the progressive movement. They wanted scientists to basically run the country. That's how they see things. They, they loved like the, that's what they admired about fascism. Like just this from the top kind of control over your life. Okay, it was Republicans that fought against segregation. It was Republicans that overwhelmingly got the Civil Rights Act passed, not Democrats. Democrats didn't vote for it mostly. So some did. I'm not saying no, yeah, yeah, none did, but yeah, for the most majority, part, Republicans yeah. did. People don't know this stuff. And then they like, and then they said, "Oh, well, Democrats just switched to Republican after that." False. Yep. That's just completely false. Yeah. Like the South didn't become Republican until like the 80s, 90s. I mean, it's just just when it was way less racist. So this is just, they, they, the Democrats have lied so much about history. Um, so, okay, so we're on the right side of history, right? Abe Lincoln, the penny, going back to the penny. A couple of things, a couple of symbolic things about the penny. And it could be any coin, but I choose the penny because of Abe Lincoln and it's one cent. Why one cent? Because it's the smallest unit, just like the individual. The indi- you, can, you can categorize people all day long into identity politics and group on group nonsense like this group deserves more power over that group this group deserves reparations from that group that's identity politics it's it's the it's the worst thing you can do to a culture okay the penny is the counter argument to that mm. it symbolizes i think the individual because you can categorize people and with subcategories and sub subcategories eventually you just get down to an individual so why not just say the individual matters and the content of your character matters and quote martin luther king who understood these things what else is on the penny? Just like on every coin, a pluribus unum of many one. We're not a multicultural society. We're a society that takes in and assimilates from many places, and we're one. We're, we have an American culture, okay? And it's based on our founding ideals, okay? Liberty. The coin says liberty. I don't, I don't really need to explain that one. Liberty is important. <laughs> um, ordered liberty. Not like freedom, not like hedonistic course, freedom course, yeah. to do whatever the heck you want, but liberty. There's a difference. And um, and God we trust because our morals come from somewhere. They're not just you don't just make them up. Moses, the, the portrait of Moses looks down on the, the speaker of the house uh, on the house floor, and that's and with twenty three other lawgivers on, on the on the walls there, and that's a really cool thing. And, and Moses, but Moses is in the middle because it's the first time we got laws that actually were true. And you just can't argue with them; they're just true. Yeah, that's important. You have to have an anchor in your morality and. Um, you can reason and left an atheist like to think you can reason your way to morality and you might get lucky and reason your way to, there's plenty of atheists that have the same moral codes that religious people do. But you know, the argument we have with them is, well, where'd you get those? Did you just get lucky? Are you just lucky you happen to grow up in Western civilization founded on Judeo-Christian history? I think you are. I think you're just lucky totally. because 
you could just change your mind. You can rationalize all sorts of crazy stuff with the 20th century is full of that kind of behavior. Um, and so that's what conservatism stands for. It's Americanism. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the best way. I'm not a conservative. I'm an American. These yeah. are American yeah, principles. Absolutely. And these used to be shared by liberals too. JFK, great liberal. I don't know if he'd be Democrat these days. I don't think so. Um, but these are liberal values. These are conservative values. They're just American values. And, and, the, and the left has changed, has, has trampled over liberalism to a huge extent. And so, you know, that's the best way to argue with people. Because unfortunately, our politics these days is always like about like who's the worst person. When they try to make it about Trump, just, just move past it. This is, this is, it's, about, it's not about a person. It's like we can play that tit for tat game. Oh, well, oh, you have, we have Trump. Well, you have Pelosi. Of course. Well, fine. Well, you have Schumer and you have McConnell. And it's like, what are you, they lied about this thing and that thing. Well, they lied about this thing and that thing. Like, what are you really arguing about at this point? Yeah. Human imperfection? Okay. What about, the, what about the foundations? What about the principles of governance? Because in the end, these imperfect people, they still basically represent foundations of governance and an approach to governance. And that's what you, you always, always push the argument back towards that conversation because it's all that really matters. This isn't like a, a, a compare to Jesus moment, right? Like I'm not, and I'm no, no politician can yeah. be. Yeah. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dishonest tit for tat and, always, and, and, and avoid it. Avoid it at all costs. Dan, thank you so much. Super helpful. I, I really feel like I'm leaving with a, a better understanding of the importance of knowing what I believe and why I believe it and going on that journey and being willing to do that unashamedly and pursue that and not feel rushed to jump to conclusions. The importance of prioritizing values and understanding the values that built this country, especially as they're under attack more than ever before. And really re-emphasizing the idea that we are voting and engaging with our civic duty based upon a set of values and mindsets, not on people. It goes a lot deeper than that. And I think that's really important. So Congressman, I really appreciate your time and I hope to see you again soon. Great to be with you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It was an honor to be able to speak with Congressman Crenshaw. If you'd like any more information about what he's up to, his book, Fortitude, his podcast, or any other resources, you can access those in the links in the description of this video or this podcast. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please make sure to share this content amidst your community and subscribe to the show. I look forward to engaging with you in future episodes. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.